Hello, everyone. I'm Andrew. We here at I Don't Get It have been working for the past year to bring you a brand new limited run podcast series. A Tale of Two Weeklies is about the historical rivalry of Edmonton's two alternative weekly papers, C Magazine and View Weekly. Both magazines are now long gone, not only in print, but also online. Having been arts reporters at both papers over the years, Paul and Fonda and I wanted to share this story about what those publications meant to us and to so many writers and to the community of artists they covered. You can subscribe to the new episodes at taleoftwoweeklies.ca, but for now, we wanted to share one with you. Here's episode one of A Tale of Two Weeklies. There were a few who were reticent about that, um, which actually uh, led to some very, very ruptured friendships, some of which continue to this day. Yeah, I was never entirely clear on the circumstances of what went down, but I knew there was some bad blood there. He wasn't really able to keep up with his print bill, which kept growing and growing. You know, you can't uh, dip into an endless supply of uh, cash when you're when you're taking something on that costs more money than, than you could possibly afford or even imagine. Ron decided he didn't want to do that and, and left and started View Weekly, took the staff and all of the files and everything, and we were left with this sort of empty room. They were keeping C alive to draw advertising dollars away from this newly formed competitor paper, View Weekly. The rivalry was was like the only thing we cared about. And we were we were soldiers in that ongoing um, battle. Yeah, well that was a that was a that was messy. For twenty-six years, two rival magazines existed as the alternative weekly press in one blue-collar Canadian prairie city. This is the story of View Weekly and C Magazine, two weekly papers that ran in Edmonton between 1992 and 2018. This is a bittersweet elegy and love letter to those papers, their rise, glory days, notorious rivalry, and eventual decline. I'm Andrew Paul. I'm Fonda Mithrash. I'm Paul Blinov. And this is a tale of two weeklies. On November 29, 2018, the final issue of View Weekly hit the streets in Edmonton, Alberta. For 23 years, the free alternative news and arts magazine was delivered to hundreds of locations throughout the city every Thursday. While there was an outpouring of sadness from the community when the magazine finally shuttered, no one was all that shocked. Print media's era of struggle began long before View Weekly's demise, and the magazine's shrinking page counts indicated that it too would soon end in closure, just as so many other publications like it. Calgary's weekly Fast Forward closed in 2015, and even the grand example of alt-weeklies, The Village Voice, stopped printing a physical version in 2017 and shut down for good just a few months before View in August 2018. Those final issues of View were delivered by a small fleet of converted Japanese vans owned by father-son team Ron and Mike Garth, who distributed the paper until its very last week. Ron Garth founded View in 1995 and eventually ceded ownership of the paper to another publisher in 2011 when both View Weekly and its rival, C Magazine, were bought out and merged under a single banner. View Weekly was Edmonton's longest-running alt-weekly, but not its first. Back in 1992, the city's original weekly was that rival, C Magazine, which began as a monthly music flyer merged with an indie newspaper called the Edmonton Bullet. Our story begins when those two papers came together under the direction of one ponytailed music store owner, Ron Garth. Something, you know, when you 
uh, do a good job and it works out and everybody's, you know, it's good. Uh, that's what you're there for. Yeah, that's what uh, there is in it. Yeah, there's nothing like uh, issue to issue when it would come out and it was, there it was, you know, it was coming off the press. And, uh, and then there's a whole other aspect of distribution and, and getting it out. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, I, I think that's what happened to the record store business. Is it, it morphed into the uh, publishing business, and we learned as we went. Back in the late 80s, Garth was running a music store on White Avenue called Something's Hot and began printing a small monthly magazine called Something's Entertaining Edmonton. That's where the S-E-E for C Magazine would eventually come from. A fellow named Reg Sylvester was running another paper, the Edmonton Bullet, which Ron wanted to connect with his own publication. At the time, there was a robust stream of provincial grants available in Alberta. The era was rich with oil profits and feel-good vibes for Albertan heritage, thanks to the Peter Lougheed government, which ended in 1985. Over that decade, several of Edmonton's most beloved arts organizations began. Brian Paisley formed the Fringe Theatre Festival based on Edinburgh's model, which would become North America's largest fringe festival. Joseph Schachter was the director of the Citadel. Today, the main stage in that building bears his name and hosts shows that are on their way to Broadway. It was also during that decade that a plucky group of graduates from the University of Alberta called themselves the Free Will Players and formed Edmonton's Outdoor Shakespeare Festival, settling into the brand new, at the time, 1,100-seat amphitheater in Edmonton's River Valley. With emerging grant models supporting career-minded artists, these organizations could afford year-round operations and also regular investment in local advertising. I guess in the late 80s, uh, there was a lot of funding going on through the 80s for the arts in general. And uh, uh, the Bullet, you know, they were making a a fairly uh, reasonable effort to be self-sustaining and they did what they could to sell advertising. But not many people really like to sell advertising very much. And it's easy to write for a grant, write up a grant. And and I think that uh, the Bullet was great. They did a lot of good work for years with that. that. But then the grants started to really seriously dry up. And so... uh, the bullet was out there, and uh, I was working with you know on C, and uh, and it just just became harder and harder to get money for uh, grants, and uh, you know Reg Sylvester and Sandra and a whole bunch of really good people were working for the bullet, and uh, and we just uh, realized that uh, we we were uh, we had uh, probably a little better business model. As the grant streams began to dry up for the community, merging the two entertainment-focused publications seemed like a way to ensure their continued coverage of the scene. That merger also altered the publication schedule. They increased from monthly to bi-weekly and eventually to weekly distribution. Back in the late 80s, the Alt-Weekly, which is shorthand for Alternative Weekly Newspaper, or sometimes the Urban Weekly, was still emerging as a media model in Canada. If you're from a town of pretty much any size in North America, chances are you've come across one of these so-called alt-weeklies. These are free magazines distributed widely throughout cities in sidewalk boxes and racks inside bars or other venues, usually with a new issue each Thursday. That distribution made it easy for readers to plan their weekends based on comprehensive event listings and expansive reporting on community happenings. The beginnings of the alt-weeklies are generally traced back to the Village Voice in New York City, which was founded in 1955. In Canada, the Georgia Strait began in Vancouver in 1967. And by the 90s, most major cities in North America had an alt-paper with its own voice, opinions, and views on the city it was in. 
The weeklies offered artist profiles, previews and reviews of music and shows, columns on offbeat interests, and reporting on topics that weren't covered in mainstream local media. The weeklies contained sex advice columns, crude cartoons, skewering film reviews, and, sometimes, award-winning reporting on underserved issues. The magazines were popular with many demographics because of the range of coverage, and really because they were free and available pretty much everywhere. Existing publishers, people with money and resources, were starting to take notice. I would travel throughout Canada and into the U.S. and see what was going on in, in other cities. This is Duff Jameson, CEO of Great West Newspapers, who took an early interest in the Alt Weekly format. While traveling to newspaper conferences across North America, he found himself picking up the existing alts while looking for what to do in the cities he was visiting. At the time, Jameson oversaw his family-owned Gazette Press, located in St. Albert, which is a short drive north of Edmonton. And I had looked at, at uh, the granddaddy in, of alt-weeklies in Canada was the Georgia Strait out in Vancouver, so I'd been quite familiar with that. And Whenever I was in Vancouver, I would pick it up and look at it. Or if I was in Toronto, I would look at uh, Now Magazine, and then the Toronto Star came out with their iWeekly, and I would look to see what they were doing and find things to do. This was, at the time, the prime function of an alt-weekly to convey the happenings of a city through event listings. Jameson was an appreciator of that information. I was kind of the the uh, the ringleader when it came to, well, what are we going to do after our meetings tonight? And I'd say, I found a great blues club. Let's, you know, let's, <laughs> let's go down there tonight, right? And I always found that information in the listings of, of the alt-weeklers. And I traveled into the U.S. Most of the major centers had, a, had an alt-weekly. And because I'm in the publishing business, I'm thinking, that's, uh, that's something that could probably work here. Once the bullet and something's entertaining Edmonton joined to become C Magazine, it soon after came to be printed by Jameson's Gazette Press, which published numerous weekly newspapers across Alberta. We'll note here that in 1995, Great West Newspapers was formed in the joining of Southam Incorporated and Jameson Newspapers. As a fan of the Urban Weekly model, Jameson saw the potential in both the bullet and C. You know, at, at that time, um, Reg Sylvester would have been running the Edmonton Bullet, um, and he was kind of a one-man operation, mostly with some freelancers. And I think he was uh, he was um, you know working hard and struggling to to kind of make ends meet. He wasn't Reg was more of an editorial type, less of a sales and marketing type. And of course, <laughs> the lifeblood of those things is selling the advertising. That that's what makes them. Tick. Anyway, uh, Ron had come to us to get some printing quotes for his magazine, and um, we so we started printing this uh, magazine format for a while. And I said to Ron, you know, maybe this would make a good alt weekly. Right. Yeah. Not. Uh, not what you're doing exactly right now. You're, you're pretty focused on music, which is a big part of it, but it could be broadened. And, and um, as Ron thought about that, I think he realized that that might be uh, a good idea. And I mean, we spent countless hours talking <laughs> and wandering around in the streets, you know. And I think Ron had been working in the past at CFRN. 
He was kind of in the sound area, if I remember right, and he ended, okay. up, he ended up in the Gulf Islands doing some, some that type, similar type of work out there, and he'd come back and headed the store going. Anyway, we got going with this. Um, he got going with this idea, with my encouragement. We'd like to pause for a moment. As writers who worked for both magazines, this image was a pretty fucked up thing to imagine. For context, just a few years later, these two men would be divided by a printing bill. That divide would grow into a decades-long feud of litigation, resentment, and us-or-them sentiments for writers and advertisers alike, all of which was playing out in and around the pages of two mass-distributed community newspapers, and was a legendary rivalry by the time we emerged on the scene. So the image of these future rivals strolling the suburbs, planning their paper-to-be, is a hard thing to picture. Back to Ron. Uh, you know, they were in the newspaper business. They saw how effective the straight was and now was, and that Calgary didn't have uh, an urban weekly, and Edmond didn't have a urban weekly, and this looked like an urban weekly. So that was uh, something they were uh, no doubt interested in. If you're a printer, of course, you're interested in that. And, um, and so that's, uh, there was an interest in what we were doing, and we were, you know, they were of interest to us because they were printing it, and we needed a printer. And so uh, it became sort of convoluted, I guess, uh, because we'd done a ton of work, and uh, and they had, uh, yeah, they were interested in publications in Edmonton and Calgary, two urban weeklies, obviously, that uh, um, two yeah, larger cities that had lots of art stuff going on, especially Edmonton. Mm-hmm. I'd say. Um, so it was, uh, that's, that's how we got to uh, 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 arrive there. It was, uh, I guess we had mutual interest in, uh, in urban weeklies. They knew all about the street and now and everything in between. So, uh, uh, and they, they had particular interest in what we were doing. C's first issue came out in July 1992. By 1994, the printing bill had started to become an issue, especially for Jameson. Um, but he wasn't—he wasn't really able to keep up with his print bill, and yeah. which kept growing and growing. And we, well, what are we going to do about that, Ron? And it's just that you know you can't—you uh, can't always uh, uh, dip into an endless supply of uh, cash when you're when you're taking something on that cost more money than you could possibly afford or even imagine. And um, because it, it became kind of a very large print bill. As C's print bill grew steep, around the $240,000 mark, so grew the gulf between Garth and Jameson. Jameson thought a plan was being made to handle that debt through a mutually agreed upon handoff of ownership. On September 2nd, 1995, Jameson faxed a letter to Garth that proposed a plan to manage the printing debt. C would go into voluntary receivership, Great West would give Garth a job, and the increasing debts, Jameson thought, would end there. This is the voice of our co-producer Andrew Paul reading Jameson's letter to Garth, which we obtained through court records. A couple quick notes on the content of the letter. GPL refers to Gazette Press Limited, and there is mention of two people named Maureen and Bob, and we'll get to who they are in a moment. Dear Ron, I realize we have a fundamental difference in how we view the present financial state of your company. From my perspective, the company is bankrupt. Even if a gross value of some sort was attached to it, 
By the time the liabilities were deducted, you would be less than zero. I can appreciate the growth you've realized over the past few years, but at the same time, yours wouldn't be the first enterprise to fail because it was chronically undercapitalized. And that is the situation which faces both of us today. Having said that, I am eager to not only be fair, but to be seen as fair. With that in mind, here is what I am prepared to do. 1. You will be given a two-week window until Friday, September 15th at 5 p.m. to settle your account with GPL to my satisfaction, i.e. existing terms of 80% credit for receivables under 90 days will remain in force. 2. During that period, you will not incur any further debt with GPL. In other words, the bill for this week's paper will be paid before next week's paper goes to press. The same would apply for the following week. 3. Failing settlement of the account, you will agree by Monday, September 18th at 10 a.m. to submit to voluntary bankruptcy. 4. Should you agree to voluntary bankruptcy, you will be offered an employment contract, the terms of which will be determined at that time. 5. In the event of voluntary bankruptcy, I will do my best to protect Maureen from the exposure she and Bob would otherwise face. Ron, I am confident that I am being both flexible and reasonable and this is as far as I can extend GPL's exposure with his account. Please convey your acceptance of these terms by signing where indicated and returning to me by 6 p.m. today. Yours sincerely, Duff Jameson, Gazette Press Limited. The Maureen and Bob mentioned are Maureen Fleming and her husband, Bob McCammon. The latter was the assistant coach of the Edmonton Oilers at the time. Fleming was the associate publisher at sea and a longtime friend of Garth's who had come on board to help manage the printing debt. So... Garth signed the letter, seemingly agreeing to the terms laid out therein. Back to Jameson. Anyway, so Fast Forward was being launched at about the same time as all of this was, this print debt, and when I was coming to a head here in Edmonton with, with, uh, with Ron and, and C Magazine. Great West newspapers would go on to found Fast Forward Magazine, an all-weekly for Calgary, in December 1995. And um, I thought that we did made an arrangement this was all going to work fine and and um, Ron would would uh, essentially put the business into a, what was what is known as a voluntary receivership and then the main creditor which would be us would would step in and and we'd go from there and carry on Ron would would continue on in his role um, but somewhere there was uh, I guess a disconnect there was. Garth had a very different plan for moving forward, which involved starting his own magazine by using all of the personnel and resources that had up until then been powering C Magazine. Even before the two-week deadline that Jameson proposed had elapsed, Garth and the C staff up and moved out of their office. The first issue of View Weekly dropped on September 21st, 1995, which came as something of a surprise for Jameson. I don't know what it was, but, but as we got to that point, um, Ron decided he didn't want to do that and, and left and started View Weekly, took the staff and all of the files and everything, and we were left with this sort of empty room. The lore of what happened is that Ron Garth and the staff gutted the sea office overnight and used the advertising contacts and existing sea racks to put out the first issue of View from an ad hoc office in the production manager's basement mere days later. It's the stuff of local legend, especially among people who worked at either magazine over the next 20 years. For those at View, it was a defining moment of rebellion and independence that would color the paper's focus and trajectory for years to come. And like any good legend, the details vary depending on who you ask. 
I had kind of an idea. I don't think I, I got the full depth of it. I definitely, I only ever heard the, the version that my publisher told me. Scott Lingley was an editor at Sea in the early years after the split and served as its longtime restaurant reviewer. Around town, he was also a drummer for the band Old Reliable. So I don't know what offenses were committed on the, on the Great West or Gazette Press Limited side, but I understood that basically the Sea magazine was started by the publisher of View, and then he walked out on a printing tab and C took it over and ran it out of spite, basically. They were keeping C alive to draw advertising dollars away from this newly formed competitor paper, View Weekly. Uh, because I was already, I was kind of all in from the first time I met Ron, where, you know, he was a great guy. And I, I still call him a great friend to this day. Eden Monroe was View's music editor for almost a decade, ending his tenure in 2014. I love when I see him. Uh, and he told me the story between the two, and I was like, no, man, I'm, I'm all in. Like, I'm on your side, and this is, this is where I'm at. Mm-hmm. So even when I was a writer, I did still pick up C. Uh, it, a lot of times it was, it was to look at the difference between the two. Right. Um, even when I was not editing. Once I was editing the paper, then it just became like a weekly thing where we sat down. It was like, now we do this all together. Um, I'm, I'm reading it, doing exactly what I did, saying like, oh, how come, how come they got this interview and we didn't get this interview? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, here, look, we both got the same interview and, you know, I like this one better than that one. Uh, reading their paper and, and being like, who's, who are the writers here? Who's, who are the good writers, you know? Mm-hmm. Who, who would we rather have, you know, if, if the opportunity came up? Well, I'd get the story of, like, this bitter rivalry of, of how the, the publisher of View had this intense hatred for C. Zoltan Varadi was a longtime writer for C and photographer in Calgary. He actually shot the very first cover of Fast Forward, Calgary's Alt Weekly, published by Great West. He now works in the media department at the Glenbow Museum in Calgary. I don't know. I never talked to the man, so I don't know how much of any of this is true, but this is the stories I received. Um, that at one point he was actually the person who started C and then he was bought out, but not willingly or something. I was never entirely clear on the circumstances of what went down, but I knew there was some bad blood there. So I've heard that from C's perspective, they didn't think that there was a rivalry. <laughs> but, uh, but from our perspective, the rivalry was, was like the only thing we cared about. Brian Bertels filled a number of roles at VIEW over the years. When we talked to him for this series, he was in law school at York University. You know, our boss, our leader, had had his first paper taken from him, um, you know, by by a combination of the bank and by a combination of of uh, a media baron out in St. Albert, and uh, and they had they had wrested control in some sort of legal maneuver from him, and there was a there was some sort of a midnight move that created a view, and mm-hmm. we were we were soldiers in that ongoing. Um, battle. The reaction to to uh, to view popping up, uh, I guess, was um, 
probably the best word is dismay <laughs> sort of somewhere between surprise and shock this is Gord Nielsen, who was the chief financial officer at Great West and would become the publisher of C Magazine from 1999 until 2007. I wouldn't have imagined that happening at the time, but I guess in in retrospect, not soon after, it wasn't really that that surprising. <laughs> Gene Kozowin was the production manager for C at the time of the split. It was his basement that Garth and the editors moved into to produce View, the new magazine. I know a lot less than what people suspect because just handling the editorial end of things was a job in itself. So I wasn't even aware of stuff until maybe two or three weeks before it happened. He showed me a letter that came from uh, from Duff. What was his last name? Jameson. Duff Jameson, that's right, yeah. That they were going to come in. They were bringing their own people in. And they was going to continue and basically were gone. Okay. And he had a particular date, which was late September. I don't remember the exact date that it was happening. Because some of us were thinking, well, if they came in, they'll leave the core staff alone because we know how to run this thing. Right. Which was, their, which was a huge mistake on their part, I might add. Because the first wave of people that came in didn't know a damn thing about how to run it. Mm-hmm. And... While they had a greater presence because they could throw more money at it, I still think our writing was connecting with people a lot more because we knew that we knew that stuff. We knew the whole scene. So when you moved offices, um, what what did you uh, take with you? There's the freelancers, uh, I imagine. You brought a bunch of people with you. We um, brought as many as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few who were reticent about that, um, sure. which actually uh, led to some very very ruptured friendships, some of which continue to this day. Right. Um, All the resources we managed to do. um, Computers, not so much, although I scrubbed them myself. I just remembered my DOS language and went in there and just totally scrubbed them. So there was nothing that they could retrieve from those computers if they once they got in there. Right, right. So that meant they had to create their whole magazine from scratch Mm -hmm. because the templates were destroyed the whole bit. Stephen Sandor was also working at Sea as a writer and copy editor at the time of the split, and also moved over to the basement office with Garth. It was it was more abrupt, I think, for me. I think he had heard rumors and such, but I think it was more as in the, oh, what do you mean we're putting the next issue out in Gene's out of Gene's basement, and <laughs> we're not doing this at the office? It was like, what? What? What's going on? And well, we're actually not Sea anymore. We're going to be something new, and it's like, so just go to, to Gene's house and do what you do. Like, really? <laughs> you know, it's like it was. Uh, uh, um, so, it, for me, it wasn't so much about any sort of politics or anything going on in terms of the magazines, or even so. It was just the. Okay, uh, we're going there now, and that office was like bare. Like I mean, it was picked clean, um, the old one, and the 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 shotgun move to the new one, right. which was Gene's basement. Mm. And I how how long were we there? A month? Two months? Um, it seems like almost a month. Um, Probably felt but, like but a year. It, yeah, it felt like a year, but it, but it was less than two weeks before we got the first issue out. And that yeah. first issue was a nightmare to do. And there was the injunction against it, right? The Monday following View's first issue, four days later, 
The appointed receiver of C Magazine filed a claim against Ron Garth and View Weekly for damages in the amount of $400,000, claiming that Garth, quote, published a magazine called View Weekly with layout, type font, editorial content, column headings, distribution network, writers, and advertisers that were substantially similar and in many instances identical to those utilized by C Magazine. The statement of claim noted that View was distributed in distribution racks owned by C without its consent or knowledge and claimed that the defendants, being Garth and View and Fleming, have deliberately attempted to pass off the publication of View magazine as being associated or affiliated with C magazine to obtain the benefit of the reputation and goodwill of C magazine. They also state that the defendant's conduct is calculated to or is likely due to deceive the public so as to confuse View Weekly with C magazine. In later records, there is evidence submitted that shows faxes to advertisers from sales staff saying that View Weekly is formerly C Magazine and View is a new name for an old friend. Again, this is the voice of Andrew Paul reading one of those faxes. To the Brian Mitchell campaign from View Magazine. Date, September 21st. View Magazine is a new name for an old friend. C Magazine. Attached, please find rates and distribution information. We have talked with several candidates who have asked us, so we thought we'd provide some information to you. Deadline for view is 4 p.m. Fridays, with copy camera ready for 3 p.m. Monday. I would like to talk with you about our exciting changes. View is now on the streets. We found many faxes, some of them handwritten as we worked our way through court records for this series which was kind of charming, but also reminded us this was 1995. Email hadn't exactly caught on yet. Anyway, so Jameson and Great West worked to keep C afloat, and View kept right on trucking, even through a court-ordered injunction. For Garth, having his staff stick with him in the new magazine was a vindicating feeling. That was pretty gratifying, because there wasn't uh, uh, there was a, there was a meeting and everything, but there wasn't a, there were no speeches. And the courts, too, and we don't want to get into that, because we, we were in court initially, and, uh, and they saw it as... Uh, you know, they went after it and tried to get us off the street legally with the court, and they just threw it out. They saw it for what it was, and uh, that was pretty gratifying. But, but again, who cares? That's dry court stuff, you know? There is a lot more to this dry court stuff, as Garth calls it, and it goes on for years. We will include notes and evidence along the way in this series as it pertains to the story. For now, suffice it to say that the split was not amicable. Yeah, well, that was a that was a that was messy, mm -hmm. uh, and I can, but I don't. I don't want to, like I say, I, there there are no good guys and bad guys here. If anything, I was uh, one of the bad guys and one of the good guys too, uh, because we've been years building it up and. Uh, uh, when it Bush came to shove, we both had versions of the story, but uh, uh, they wanted it, and uh, and uh, we wanted it, and so uh, we both got it, <laughs> you know, one means or another. And it, uh, it wasn't, oh yeah, the bastard, you know, uh, sons of bitches. It was, it was, it was like. That's the way it works. You know, that's uh, human nature. It's the publishing business. It's what it is. That's, that's the way it goes. As the weeks rolled on, View continued production in the basement, which had quickly proved itself to be a less than ideal office environment. It was, it was a bunker. It was very tiny. It was cramped. It was a, a rumpus room that was maybe, who knows, 20 feet long and about 10 feet deep. 
if you uh, moved your elbow, you'd probably hit the production guy in the head. It was that cramped. Um, we also had two cats. There was a litter box you know, <laughs> by the furnace next room. And we had, we had a guy named Terry, uh, uh, Terry Cox, who was one of our production guys, and... Uh, and a reviewer who went by the pseudonym T.C. Shaw, he says, says, yeah, it's always great to come in here and work in a place that smells like a cat's butt. It's telling that Garth's newfound View Weekly branded itself as 100% independent. That was a quiet shot at C's more corporate ownership, which dovetailed with the era the paper was emerging in. The 90s was a time of authenticity, of indie legends versus corporate sellouts, of Gen X rebellion against bland office culture capitalism. The division between indie and corporate then was pronounced and profound, and View Weekly was firmly positioning itself on the former side, and was looking to land with impact. The fledgling paper had a rival to best, and something to prove. You know, I talked to people in groups and whatnot, and, and everybody was there, and everybody felt the same way. And so somehow we managed to uh, put it back on the street. And so, so we we did uh, uh, become really independent and became really poor. And that was how C Magazine and View Weekly began their decades-long rivalry. The papers were covering Edmonton over a period when the city doubled in population, from 500,000 to a million people. Oil prices rose and crashed and rose and crashed in a province that succeeds and suffers along with that industry. Maybe you've never heard of Edmonton. Most people know it as either the place where Gretzky won a few Stanley Cups or the one with the very big mall. During the weekly's tenure, the city's once great hockey team, the Edmonton Oilers, lost its former glory and yet was somehow rewarded with a half billion dollar new arena. Meanwhile, the career-long trajectory of local artists could be traced within the weekly's pages, from indie productions to the biggest stages. The creative scene in Edmonton birthed many greats, including bands like The Smalls and Junior Gone Wild, the video game company BioWare, actor Nathan Fillion, the second largest fringe festival in the world, and the weeklies were there to write about them all. There was robust coverage of news, arts, food, culture, and politics, and internally, countless journalists and writers were given their first paid bylines. Before we go into the rest of this series, we have some disclosures to make about who we are and how we came to tell this story. I'm Paul. I'm Fonda. I'm Andrew. We all worked at one or both of these papers between 2006 and 2016. As freelancers and editors, our early adult lives were spent in the alt-weekly grind. It's fun and sometimes reckless lifestyle. It's personal and professional challenges. And it's meager wages. We got to know both magazines' distinctive casts of characters, many of whom talked to us for this series, and some of whom are no longer with us. I started at Sea in 2006 as the snarky receptionist and eventually took over editorial of listings, city life, and music uh, until 2009. And then I was fired. At that point, I crossed over and wrote for View until 2017. You wrote for me. Uh, I was the arts and film editor at View Weekly from 2009 until I left the paper in 2016. I shared a desk with Fonda at Sea as an intern in 2008. Afterwards, they let me stick around to edit the listings before hiring me as a staff writer. And I ended my tenure at the paper in 2010 as its entertainment editor. The three of us met in 2009, and we started podcasting together in 2013. We wanted to tell this story because both magazines were part of our lives at a very formative time. But this is more than just nostalgia. 
As alt-weeklies begin to disappear from the media landscape of North America, the living history they represent is going with them. The websites of both view and see are completely gone. So there's very little evidence of what went on, and as Ron Garth might say, we should probably keep trying to tell that story. This is our bittersweet elegy for the regs, and our love letter to the column inches where we got to play and grow. Next time on A Tale of Two Weeklies. You know, we had hookers yelling at us, go take my picture, and they'd turn their head, whatever. It was a newspaper war. Good old-fashioned, <laughs> knock-down, drag-out newspaper war. And I was just trying to see if nonviolent aggression worked. And when he finally took a swing at me at about 3 in the morning, I went, ah, I win, I win, I win. What made it easier for me was uh, the really crappy crew of people that was writing for C. A Tale of Two Weeklies is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonder Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Music is by Luke Thompson. Artwork is by Michael Nunweiler. This series was made possible with project support from the Edmonton Heritage Council. Special thanks to Edmonton Community Foundation for use of their recording studio.